You are listening to Hands at Work Audio. On the 2nd of June 2017, Australian pastor Tim McLaughlin spoke from Psalm 51 about repentance. Tim divides Psalm 51 into five sections. Section 1 is from verse 1 to 3. Section 2 is from verse 4 to 6. Section 3 from verse 7 to 12. Section 4 from verse 13 to 17. And section 5 from verse 18 to 19. Now I wanted to speak on repentance this morning, which is not the most uh, exciting subject for most people. Um, I know certainly within an Australian context, if I was to announce my sermon as being on repentance, I would see this uneasy moving in our seats because it's not the topic that we particularly enjoy to talk about. But I trust that as we unpack Psalm 51 together, you'll actually see for the Christian, repentance is a beautiful thing rather than something to be feared. Uh, Just recently, I was on a vision trip uh, into Zimbabwe uh, and Mozambique, and there was two Germans travelling with us, two Americans, um, one Zimbabwean, one South African, and one Australian. And it was... (laughs) If you put all those guys together, and particularly the ones that we had, um, then you get a constant stream of laughter of joking and teasing. Um, You get all the the cross-country banter and jokes, uh, and we quickly learn that the Germans, true to their form, are the masters of efficiency. Um, The the Americans are very warm people, and the Australians somewhere fit in the middle, and so it was a a load of fun. So there was much joking, much teasing, as we were travelling and working together in communities. Uh, on one occasion, uh, George warned us. He said, look, it's good to joke together, but we need to be careful sometimes that we don't step over that line. And that was a cautionary reminder to me. For the very next day in the community, I, I made a joke about Farai, who's our Zimbabwean um, master. He, he's a, an amazing guy. And I made a joke that later on I deeply regretted. It was funny at the time and I got laughed at, but it was actually at his expense. And so I took that to bed with me. And you know how God sometimes starts to just work on you. And you know, you know he's got something he wants you to address. And by the morning, uh, I knew I couldn't do anything about it. So one of the first things we did, well, I did when we hopped in the car and we were about to drive out, I said, guys, I just want to say something to Farai before we leave. I just need to apologise to him yesterday. And I told them what, the, what, what I was apologising for. Now, I'm not sure how you go with repenting and apologising, particularly in public, um, but for me, the heart was beating as the closer I got to getting into the car and I knew I was going to have to say something and there's something inside of you that's recoiling from this moment. Um, But I knew I was under pressure from God. I needed to, to say it. Now, let me tell you something that made it a lot easier for me. On two occasions when I've been on vision trips, George has publicly apologised Um, to us for different things that he felt that he'd done wrong. Now, having George apologise made it a lot easier for me to apologise. And you see, when we live in a community where repentance is a common thing, then it becomes something that's easier for all of us. Now, living in close quarters in community means that inevitably there will be occasions where we need to apologise. Confession and apologies are critical to maintaining relationships. And the more intense the community, the more the need comes. And so what I wanted to look at this morning is um, is repentance. 
And um, I'm going to address it at the end, but I want to say to you at the beginning that repentance should be much easier for Christians than it is for the rest of the world. And yet, sadly, we often find that it's not the case. The Christians, like the rest of the world, struggle with this as an issue. Now, in order to understand that and to make repentance easier for us, I want us to look at this psalm together and look particularly at how we are to repent, which is really what Psalm 51 is all about. Now, Psalm 51 is one of the most detailed descriptions of repentance that we have in the Bible, and that's what we're going to be working through this morning. Now, the heading at the start of the psalm gives away the background um, to the poem. In most Bibles it reads, as you have in the NIV on your page there, a heading that states something like this, the Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So the psalm gives you the context uh, for what is going on here. And the story is told in detail in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and and chapter 12. And if you need to, go back and revisit that story, um, particularly against the context of 51. But in summary form, um, approximately a year before this psalm was written, uh, David had an affair with Bathsheba, who was the wife of one of his most loyal servants, Uriah the Hittite. And consequently, as a result of that, Bathsheba had fallen pregnant. And in order to cover up his sin, David called Uriah back from the battlefield in order to sleep with his wife. But Uriah refused to do so, saying, how can I um, enjoy the comforts of home when my fellow soldiers are still at war? And so he didn't sleep with his wife. And so he foiled David's attempt to conceal his sin. And so what David then did was to arrange with Joab, his commander, to have Uriah Um, put into a place of vulnerability in the battle and he was consequently killed. Now following a brief time of mourning, David then married Bathsheba. So for all intents and purposes, it looked like David had managed to conceal his sin from the nation. Only a few people like Joab knew of it. And so it all looked good. However, as we finish the story in 2 Samuel, we're told that what David had done displeased the Lord. And 12 months later, he sends the prophet Nathan uh, to confront David over his sin. And Psalm 51 is the written record of David's consequent um, confession and repentance. Now, as I said before, as we read it, we are given one of the most complete explanations of how we ought to repent. You won't find a fuller explanation in the whole of the rest of the scripture. Now, if you look at the Bible reading handout that I've given you, you'll notice that I've broken it into five paragraphs. Psalm 51 is notoriously difficult to um, break into a structure, but this is my attempt at it. Now, the last paragraph, verses 18 to 19, appears to be a concluding plea for national blessing, so I won't look at it this morning. I'm more interested in the first, or the paragraphs before it. Therefore, if we count that last paragraph out, it leaves us with four paragraphs or four steps Um, in David's prayer of repentance and I'm going to give you each step as we go and you can write them beside the paragraph that's what those little bracket things are there you can write alongside it um, the four steps uh, that I'm going to use to explain um, repentance in Psalm 51. Now the first step in repentance covers verses 1 through to 3 and here it is if you're writing it down it's admit sin admit sin So the first thing that David does in repenting is to freely 
and without reserve admit his sin. In verses 1 to 2, he uses three different Hebrew words for his sin, and I've underlined them on your handout there so you can see them. In verse 1, he says, blot out my transgressions. Um, In verse 2, he pleads, wash away all my iniquity and then cleanse me from my sin. Three different Hebrew words all related to sin. In verse 3, he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now, what his words do is reflect his full acknowledgement of his breaking of God's law and that he has completely fallen short of God's standard for him, particularly as the king. You see, he was God's special and anointed king. He was the one that God had taken from being a shepherd and brought him into this privileged role of being the king over Israel. He, of everybody, was the one who was meant to model and to uphold God's justice. Instead, in a terrible abuse of his power, he had modelled evil and injustice instead. And so these words, as he opens his psalm, indicate that now, finally, for the first time, he's taking full responsibility for his sin. He confesses that it is my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. You see, he's taking now full responsibility for his sin. He's no longer making excuses, no longer seeking to evade it. He's no longer making a yes, but scenario. You know, we typically do that with sin. We say yes, But if they hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have done my bit. So there's no yes but here with David. He accepts full and unconditional responsibility for what he's done to Bathsheba and Uriah. It is his sin and no one else's. So this is the first step in repentance. It is to admit our sin without making any excuses. Now the great tendency when we sin is to make excuses, to try and minimise our sin by blaming others. We say yes, but... So the first step in real repentance is not to make excuses. We acknowledge our sin and we do not seek to explain it away. So real repentance is not merely saying a grudging, I'm sorry. Uh, One of the things that we used to do with our kids when they were younger is we would get them to confess their sin to us when they'd done something wrong. And uh, sometimes it was harder than extracting teeth. Uh, And in the end, you might get a grudging, I'm sorry, but we wouldn't be satisfied with that. Now, tell us what you've done wrong. Explain it to us. Put it out there in words so that we can understand. You see, what we were doing is saying, we want to hear it from you. So in real repentance, we say, yes, I was late and there was no excuse. Or we say, yes, I was not prepared properly for that task and the problem that has transpired is my fault. We say, yes. I was not being thoughtful to you when I made that comment, and I'm sorry. So saying sorry like this is life-giving when we're living and working in community. Um, It restores relationships. It heals deep wounds. We need to make this a practice. We need to make this a habit. So the first step in repentance is to admit our sin. But as we follow Psalm 51, we will find that David goes beyond that admittance to something else in verses 4 to 6. And uh, this is the second step, and I'm going to need to explain it for you, but here's the second step, the words that I want you to write down there. The second step is to go deeper. Go deeper. Go deeper, verses 4 through to 6. Now, one of the most confusing statements in Psalm 51 is David's statement in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
And if you consult the commentaries, you'll find that over and over again, they struggle with this. What is David meaning by this? Now, if you're like me, when you hear that statement against you and you only have us in, your immediate response is to say, hang on a minute. What about Bathsheba and Uriah? Surely, David, you've sinned against them as well. Well, the response to that, of course, is of course, yes, he has sinned against them. Um, he's, t- he's sinned against them terribly. But how then can he actually say, against you, God, and you only have I sinned? So that's our dilemma, or that's our question. Now, the answer to it is quite profound, and I think it reflects one of the greatest insights that, Davis, that David gives us about repentance in the Bible. And so travel with me as I unpack it, because I think if you understand this, you understand something very significant. You see, in the Bible, repentance always requires us to go beyond the surface sin that we've committed toward one another to the deeper sin that we've committed toward God. There's surface sin, what we do to one another, but there's a deeper sin at the same time that we commit towards God. That's why I've called this second step going deeper. Now, what I mean by this is that in biblical repentance, we always have to go deeper we always have to identify the sin beneath the sin. All right? That's the challenge with this, step, with this step. Identify the sin beneath the sin. Now note how David describes this in verses 4 through to 6. In verse 4 he begins by saying, Against you, you only God, have I sinned, so, are, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. He's saying, we don't completely understand it yet. I've sinned somehow against God, and God, you are right to judge me. Then in verses 5 to 6, he goes deeper in exploring that problem. In verse 5, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He's saying, from birth I was a sinner. From birth there was something fundamentally wrong with me. Then in verse 6, he explains that God has never been interested in only surface holiness. He says, you desired faithfulness even in the womb. In another translation, he says, um, behold, uh, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, what David appears to be saying is that, God, you have never merely been interested in surface righteousness. No, you've always wanted truth in the inner being, in the core of who I am. So let me try and sum up what I think David appears to be saying in these verses. He seems to be saying, it's not the sin against Bathsheba and Uriah that is the real issue. Yes, I've sinned and done what is wrong to them. But God, what you really want is something deeper than that. What you really want is truth in my core nature in my inner being. So in other words, he's not diminishing what he's done to Bathsheba and Uriah, but he's saying, by comparison to what I've done to God, it's as if it's against him and only him have I sinned. So that's the second step in biblical repentance. It is to go deeper. It's to identify the sin beneath the sin. So we have to go beyond the surface sin, the sin we've committed toward other people, to the deeper sin committed against God. But that leaves us with the question, what is the deeper sin against God? I think to understand that, we need to go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 and 3. In Genesis 2, we find that Adam and Eve in that magnificent garden that God had created for them, they've essentially been given paradise. 
And the only thing they had been forbidden is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, every other tree is yours, but just don't touch that one. Just don't touch that one. But then along comes the serpent and he says to Adam and Eve something like this. Hey, I've been watching you and I feel for you, you know. That tree that God doesn't want you to eat, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that one, you know that one? Well, the reason God doesn't want you to eat it is because he knows that when you eat it, you'll become just like him, knowing good and evil. So the real reason he doesn't want you to eat it is because he doesn't want any competition. He doesn't want you to attain your potential, which is to be like God. So so the serpent concludes, don't listen to him. He doesn't really have your best interests at heart. Listen to me. Take that tree and eat it because it will change everything for you. (coughs) Now, it did change everything for them. But we have to be crystal clear about what is actually going on here. Before Adam and Eve could eat from the tree, which was their actual act of disobedience, what they had to be persuaded to was that God himself didn't have their best interests in mind. Once he'd sowed distrust in God in their minds, then the step of disobedience was easy. They had to be persuaded to distrust the goodness of God. They had to be persuaded to distrust his love for them, that he really didn't love them and he really didn't have the best in mind for them. You see, the sin beneath all other sins, the primary sin, is our questioning of the goodness of God and of his absolute love for us. That's always the sin, ultimately, beneath every other sin. Um, Let me try and explain that for you. See, we all confront at various times moments of temptation. And in a moment of temptation, we're tempted to do something that we know is contrary to God's word. And so, in some ways, what actually happens in our mind is something like this. We say, I'm tempted to do that. And then we say, God, you know, I really don't know if I can trust you. I really don't know if you absolutely have my best interests in mind. And that thing that you said no to, you know, actually that's what I want to be happy. So, God, I need that. And so because it's best for me, I'm going to go and take it or I'm going to go and do it. You see, this is the idea that God is not good and he doesn't really have my best interests at heart that lie beneath everything that we do in terms of wrongdoing. Now think about it, before David could have slept with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, he first had to doubt God's goodness and love. He first had to say, God, I know better than you what is good for me and sleeping with Bathsheba is what I want and what is good for me and so that's what I'm going to do. I know you've forbidden me from doing it but you really don't know what's best for me. I do, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. Now it's highly unlikely that's the process of thought that went through David's mind. He didn't consciously think that. But he effectively did it, even if it was unconscious to him. The important thing was he acted that way. And this is effectively how we act each time we sin and do something that is contrary to God's word. So this sin, doubting the goodness and love of God, consciously or unconsciously, is the sin that underlies every other sin in our lives. Let me give you two examples as I finish this point. Let's imagine for a moment that you've looked down on someone or you've treated someone with disdain or contempt. Now, the surface sin is pride or a critical spirit for them. 
However, the deeper sin is probably questioning the greatness of God's love for you. And because you are not confident of that, what you tend to do is to criticise others in order to build yourself up and make yourself feel better about yourself. The fundamental problem really is that you are doubting the goodness or the greatness of God's love for you. Or let's imagine you have avoided certain people or tasks that you know you should have confronted. Now, the surface sin is probably fear of others. It's fear of man. However, the deeper sin is doubting God's goodness and capacity to protect and care for you as you go ahead and confront in a way that you know he wants you to confront. In other words, we always, and hear me carefully here, we, in other words, we always doubt the goodness, of love, uh, goodness or love of God before we break the law of God. Right? We always doubt the goodness and love of God before we break the law of God. That's the deeper sin. That's the sin that David here recognises lies beneath his adultery and murder. You see, all sin ultimately is a form of cosmic treason. It's a doubting of the goodness or love of God. And that is why here in verse 4, David can say, against you and you only have I sinned. Because he's gone deep and identified the sin that lies beneath the sin. So the first step in repentance is admit our surface sin. The second is to go deeper and confess the sin against God. And, you, and let me encourage you in this. We often do the first step in repentance. We admit our sin. But we often don't do the second. And let me tell you what's important to do the second. Because when we do the second, we're actually getting down and transforming the heart. All right? We're transforming the heart that inner being that God wants transformed. When we go there with God, we're transforming the heart. So that's our second step, go deeper. The third is to consider grace. And this is verses 7 through 12, consider grace. Years ago, years ago, I did something in a large public meeting that I deeply regret. Um, Even now, when I think of my selfishness and my foolishness in that moment, I, I groan. For years afterwards, I'd almost audibly groan. You know, sometimes when the thought comes back and there's the embarrassment of that thing, and at that moment, I couldn't stop a groan escaping my lips. Um, Now it's not so much audible when I remember it, it's more inaudible. But it was a moment of extreme embarrassment for me, in a sense. Now, overwhelming grief and regret at his sin is what David is experiencing as we come to verses 7 through 12. And if that sometimes is your experience, then you need to note this third step carefully. You see, in these verses, verses 7 through 12, David is pleading with God to atone for his sin and to take away the guilt and pain associated with it. Now, there are two ways in which we can deal with the guilt and embarrassment we may feel over our sin. The first is what I've called self-atonement. The first thing you can do in in trying to deal with that guilt and embarrassment is to self-atone. Now, in this approach, we not only take responsibility for our sin, but we also take responsibility for trying to make up for it, for trying to atone for it. I commonly see this response when I'm working with people that uh, where one of the the couples in... uh, or one of the partners in a marriage relationship have cheated on the other. And, and when it's discovered, um, their remorse sometimes, either genuinely or non-genuinely, but their remorse often in those times is, is very profound. And they'll often make comments like, I'm so sorry, um, please forgive me, I will... 
And often it then flows into, I'll do anything to make it up to you. Anything to make it up. Just give me a chance to show you that I'm sorry that I've changed. And then the gifts and the flowers start to flow. And see, they're all designed to, in a sense, to make up for what I've done, to self-atone. And this kind of thing can also uh, occur when a person is deeply religious and they try to make up to God. So they promise him faithfully. You know, they, they go through sometimes amazing acts of, of self-legislation. They, 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 they seek to atone to God. I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again. They take solemn vows. They repeat rote prayers of repentance. They do acts of service. Anything to make up to God for what they've done. Well, now, what is truly remarkable about Psalm 51 and David's response is that is not what he does. Not once in the psalm, in, in verse, particularly in verses 7 and 12, does he try to make up to God or to atone for his sin. Now, that's remarkable given what his sin was, rape and murder. Instead, what we find him doing is pleading for the filling of his life with God's grace, pleading with God for God himself to atone for his sin. So this is our third step in repentance. It's to, it's to let God atone, or I'm calling it to consider grace. Now look at verses 12, 7 through 12. Note the first thing about that. The whole section is a list of appeals to God. David says, cleanse me, wash me, verse 7. Let me hear joy and gladness, verse 8. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity, verse 9. Create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me, verse 10. Do not cast me from your presence. Take not your spirit from me, verse 11. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me, verse 12. See, these are all appeals to God. And unlike in self-atonement, there are no promises or commitments that David makes to God. Nowhere does he say, I promise to do this if you will do that. They're just pure appeals to the grace of God. And that's the second thing to note about this section. They're all appeals to the grace of God. Nowhere does David bargain with God and say, I will do this if you do that. No, the whole section is an appeal for God just to show his grace, to pour out his grace upon David. And he makes no commitments. David makes no commitments in return. Now, I don't know about you, but David's approach leaves me feeling very uncomfortable. Um, to me, it feels like cheap grace, you know, where we sin and just God cleans up the mess when we say sorry. But let me say two things in response to that, because that's not what we have here. The first thing is that this appeal by David to the grace of God only comes after his full and unreserved admittance of his sin. That's verses 1 through to 3. And second, it's also associated with his pleading with God for a new heart and a new spirit, verses 10 through to 12. See, David doesn't merely plead that God would atone for his sin, but that he would give him a clean heart, a right spirit, a willing spirit. Now, intriguingly, what David appears to be doing is anticipating the promises that God would make to the later prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that one day he would give his people a new heart and a new spirit. And so here David is pleading with God for this reality. He's pleading for that new heart that would willingly and joyfully do what God wanted. And that's the reason why I've entitled this step, consider grace rather than say plead for grace, which is more what's happening here in verse 7 and 12. David had to plead for God's grace and the bestowal of a new heart, a right spirit. 
But as Christians, we live on the other side of the cross, you see. We live on the other side. So we don't plead for God for these things, for they're ours already. They've been given to us through faith in Jesus. And that is the wonder of what it means to be a Christian. It means to be born again, to be given a new heart and a new spirit. And that's the huge difference between a religious person and a Christian. One has the new heart, the other doesn't. And it also explains the difference between how a religious, religious person repents and how a Christian repents. When a religious person repents, they punish themselves in order to self-atone or to make up or to earn forgiveness. However, when a Christian repents, they know it is never to earn God's favour or God's love. They already had that in Jesus. They can never lose that. So, no, the purpose of repentance for the Christian is to remind ourselves again of the love and the goodness and the grace of God in order to break our hearts and to bring us through love to never wanting to do that again. See, religious repentance focuses upon my resolve, my effort. Christian repentance focuses on God's grace so that our hearts are broken and through his love we dissolve before him and we resolve out of love never to do that again. That is why in religion, the more we mature the less we want to repent. Well, that is a sign of, of failure and of weakness. So the religious person, the last thing they want to be doing is being confronted by sin and having to repent, for that is a sign of weakness. However, for the Christian, the more we mature, the more we feel free to repent. See, because as we mature we become more and more aware of the grace of God and our acceptance in Christ. So we feel freer and freer to drop our denials and our excuses and omit the true dimensions of our sin because we're secure in Christ. We don't have to prove anything. We can never be separated from him. So repentance for the Christian is still painful, but the assurance of our acceptance in Christ means that it's increasingly ever easy to admit we're flawed because our base never changes. David understood that and that's the reason he showed no need to self-atone. He clearly understood and pled for God's grace. So the first step is admit sin, the second is to go deeper, the third is to consider grace. The fourth and very briefly is to honour God, verses 13 through to 17, to honour God. In verses 13 through 15, for the first time we have God, David promising something to God. Now it's hard to say for sure, but I think the best way to understand the statements in verses 13 to 15 is to assume a having forgiven me before them. So David is saying in verse 13, having forgiven me, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Having delivered me from guilt of bloodshed, O God, then my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Having forgiven me, then open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. I think what these final verses are doing is showing that repentance ends with a heart that honours God by teaching others that it is God who it's safe to go to when you have sinned. Through our repentance, verse 13, we teach others that it is safe to repent and go back to God, return to God. Through our repentance, verse 14, we sing and teach others that righteousness is found in God and imparted to the repentant sinner. Through our repentance, verse 15, we open our mouths and we declare God's praise. God is the one who has atoned. See, that's the, that's the other side of repentance, the impact that it has on others. So the fourth and final step in repentance is to honour God 
through declaring his grace for forgiveness of our sin to others and so others learn it's safe to go back to God. Let me just conclude. You see, the great difference between Christian and religious repentance is the purpose and the motivating factor. In religious repentance, we try and tap into fear and the consequences of what that will mean if I don't repent. So we try and make ourselves dreadfully afraid and fearful in order that we'll never do that again. But in Christian repentance, we tap into the wonder of God's grace in order to weaken the impulse within us to do anything contrary to what God wants. That's where we go as Christians, not to fear, but to grace and God's love. So in Christian repentance, we're driven by love rather than fear. We learn to hate sin because of what it has done to God and we become appalled at the thought of hurting him all over again. Now, I think Tim Keller drives his home with what I think is a really compelling image, and I'll finish with that. He says, Imagine God's grace like this. It is like the Father coming to the Son in eternity and saying this, Son, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anyone else, and I never will again. Throughout all eternity, I've always said that if you obey me, I'll come near to you. But son, if you go to the cross... If you obey me at this point, then I will abandon you. I will let you go. On that cross, I will pour into your heart all my wrath at their sin, all the punishment their sins deserve. And even though you are the eternal son of God, the pain and the power of that justice will be so great that it will be as if your soul and body is blown apart. And I will do that. And I'll do that so when they sin, my justice won't blow them apart. And the father ends with the question, are you still willing to do this? Now we know Jesus' response was, here I am, send me. See, that's what we remind ourselves of through Christian repentance. And this is where the power to change comes from. Remind ourselves again of how can we despise the grace and the love of God in order to go and do that sin. And that's the impulse, the weakened sin within us, and that's where we go. So let me ask you as I finish, is there something any of you need to do in terms of repenting to another? My encouragement is to go and do it. Because you see, grace means it's safe to do so. Thank you for joining us. www.handsatwork.org